Let us turn then to that passage we read, and particularly the last two verses, Philippians 2, 12 to uh, 13. That will be our focus this evening, and let us once again ask for God's help. Father, we pray now for the sake of your Son that you would send forth your light and truth, send your Spirit that we might hear your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very helpful sometimes to face up to basic questions. And this is especially so in churches that have a warranted reputation for biblical preaching and good teaching. It's all too easy to consider ourselves well taught and maybe even experts in in various branches of theology. And yet if we forget the basic questions, then such knowledge will only puff us up in the end. So it's to a basic question with profound answers to which we turn this evening. What is the Christian life? And to answer it, we're going to these verses, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Lloyd-Jones described these verses as perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. So they are good verses to go to in answering our question. The context of these verses places them at the very heart of this letter. Paul's central concerns for the Philippians are outlined here in chapter 127 to chapter 2, verse 18. He is concerned with Christian holiness, Christian unity, and perseverance. And these verses lay before us the big principles. And while they are basic, they are profound. And we could sum it up like this. We are to work out what God works in. And we see here a very strong statement of our responsibility, but also of God's sovereignty. And we are to allow both to have full force and impact. We aren't to try and find a mean between the two allow both to confront us fully in the face, as it were. So what is the Christian life? Well, it is these three things. It is a life of responsibility, a life of godly fear, and a life of dependence. So first of all, a life of responsibility. And verse 12 is driving home 
the fact that we are responsible for our progress in holiness. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore is a strong word. In light of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, we are to work out our salvation. And this is not, Paul says, to depend upon him or anyone else being present. These believers had made great progress under Paul, but now he's in prison, and now there are threats to the church from persecution without and from disunity within, but they must go on. Work out your own salvation. Now, we might ask, well, is Paul speaking here to the church as a whole, or is he speaking to individuals? Some would say we should only see this as as being a corporate exhortation, exhortation, talking about our horizontal relationships, not our vertical relationships. And certainly he is addressing the church. So these words do involve what Paul says in verses 3 and 4 about unity, about counting others more important than ourselves, and so forth. But we mustn't soften these words. The salvation in view isn't merely being saved from disunity. Our soul's final salvation is in view. Hebrews 12:14 brings these things together, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Each of us must work out our own salvation. God works in His church through its individual members. Think about it. God's concerned for families to be one, to be united. But if someone has a a wrong attitude or, or, or something like that that, that, that destroys that. And each of us individually, therefore, are responsible for that not happening. So we are to work out our own salvation as individuals. It isn't merely a corporate thing. Secondarily, I think it certainly is that. But Alec Mott here puts it strongly. Responsibility for personal spiritual growth is committed to the person. Not at this point a work of God, nor a work of the fellowship, but a work of individual responsibility. My responsibility for me. Here salvation isn't being viewed as something we merit by our works but we are responsible to grow in it, and those who are truly saved will do so. 
And this is the message throughout Scripture. Think of Psalm 119, verse 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. Note the responsibility there, the action. Romans 8, 13, for if you put Sorry, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's little doubt that we each have individual responsibility to grow in our salvation and to deal with our sin. So the question is, are you and am I taking responsibility for our own salvation? Do we take seriously the fact that it must be lived and worked out? If we do so, we will be countercultural. Our culture discourages responsibility. There is a general blame-shifting culture in our society. I remember last autumn, I was walking past the newspaper stand, and there was a rather disreputable newspaper there, which I never buy, but the headline on it was Quasi-Blames Queen. And I presume the story was something about the the short-lived former Chancellor had blamed Queen Elizabeth's death for all that had gone wrong. If there's a modicum of truth in that story, then it's just indicative of our culture, the tendency to shift blame, to blame other people when we do wrong, to blame adverse circumstances or to say, the devil made me do it. No, we must take our salvation seriously. There's a place, in other words, in preaching from pulpits and in preaching to ourselves for the words ought and ought not and should. And sometimes in, in, in churches that really do magnify the grace of God, we can, be, we, we can be nervous about language like that. But this verse reminds us that there's certainly a place for it. Moises Silva is a good commentary in Philippians, and he says it is, important, it is impossible to tone down the force with which Paul points to our conscious activity in sanctification. So the Christian life is a life of responsibility. Secondly, the Christian life is a life of godly fear. A life of godly fear. We come now to the The final words in English translations of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. And again, the context reminds us that we are to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, that we are to have this mind 
among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So, when we think about fear and trembling, is this relating to the horizontal relationships that we have with each other? We look around at each other, and we realize that, that, that we are here, all of us, sinners saved by grace, and in our better moments, we think we're, we're gathered here, and the last thing we want to do is to hurt each other. We fear that, and we should, and there is truth in that, but it's, it's inadequate. Where does such esteem for one another come from? Well, it comes from seeing ourselves as we are before a holy God, and to see not only his holiness, but his underlying goodness in, in saving us and adopting us to be his children. And so we, we will fear doing him wrong. We will see his weariness more, and therefore the seriousness of working out our own salvation. That's the true fear of the Lord. It isn't a, a kind of craven fear, a superstitious kind of fear. But it is something that is central to the Christian life, the soul of godliness, John Murray called it. Psalm 34, 9 puts it as central. Fear the Lord, you His saints. That's what it means to be a saint. So the fear of God is having a true sense of his awesomeness and our own unworthiness. And it's combined with a sense of joyful wonder that he has looked on us in grace and has saved us. As Psalm 2 verse 11 puts it, rejoice with trembling. So in a given course of action, is what God thinks your main consideration. This is key to working out our salvation. What God thinks, the fear of God. As a friend of mine who ministers in Sunderland, where we used to live, once said when I heard him preaching, either you fear God or you sin. And it was so for Daniel, for example. Think about his integrity. He wasn't a perfect man, and yet his integrity was without blemish. And his enemies had to say in the end, we shall not find any ground for for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What a challenging witness that is. And how much more so as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was prophesied of him by Isaiah in Isaiah 11 verse 3 that his delight would be in the fear of the Lord. 
Any Christian, any professing Christian will say, I want to be like Jesus. But if you want to be like Jesus, then you must fear God. In a loving family, children will want to please their father or their mother. They will not want to do them wrong when they when they do them wrong, when they realize they've done wrong, even, even as adults, like the, the young man we heard about in the children's talk this morning, they are, they are grieved by that. And so it ought to be with us before God. We have a filial fear of offending God. The Christian life is a life of godly fear, and this is what drives our life of responsibility. And yet all of this convicts us. We realize our failure, our failure to take responsibility and our failure to fear God. So that brings us lastly to a life of dependence. So it is a life of responsibility, a life of godly fear, but lastly, a life of dependence. And we move to verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And in verse 12, we have the human responsibility, and here we have God's sovereignty. Let them both have their full weight. Here we are reminded that ultimately God is in charge of our salvation from first to last. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. And so, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. And we see this reality, this connection in the little word at the beginning of the verse 4. We are to work out our salvation, but if we are doing so in fear of God and sorrow over sin, it's because God is at work in us. He is, as someone has put it, the great energizer in our working So the gospel of God's grace is paramount. It's not lost in calling for God-fearing responsibility. It is essential to calling for God-fearing responsibility. And in context, we see how such a life is brought about. In verses 6 to 8, we read of Christ's humiliation Not only did he add humanity to his divine nature, but he took the form of a bondservant. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He took our sin, including all our excuses for not progressing in the Christian life. He took our evil thoughts and deeds He made them his very own, and he he bore the penalty. The, The sacrifice was accepted, and therefore, 
verse 9 to 11, God has highly exalted him, and from heaven he has poured out his Spirit, and in heaven he is interceding for us. And so, the triune God is our great energizer as we work out our salvation. What a wonderful thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And whatever it means to work out our salvation, and I hope we understand it a bit better, it doesn't mean gaining merit. Romans 8, which I've just quoted at the beginning, goes on to link Christ's coming in the flesh and his bearing our punishment to our receiving of the Spirit and obedience to his commands. And so we work out what God works in as all the blessings of the cross flow to us. And God is sovereign in this both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He transforms our wills. He provides what He demands, and we cannot take the glory. I read recently a book that I found very helpful, the Aber Conference Addresses of Hugh D. Morgan, formerly of Malpas Road in 1978 or something like that, Holy God, Holy People. I'm sure you're, you're familiar, many of you, with the book. And this is what Morgan said. It must be understood that this relationship is not one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we ours, thereby producing the required result. No, God works in us, and we also work all working out of the Christian life on our part is the effect of God working in us, enabling us to will and to do what is well-pleasing in His sight. This is not a division of labor. Rather, it is a work of God that moves us to work. Where God's Spirit is at work renewing a person, He challenges that person to take action. That's how we are to understand sanctification. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Justification is an, is an act of God. He just simply declares it. We contribute nothing, but sanctification is a work of God. It's of God for His glory, and yet we are involved. This more and more element of dying to sin is something that we must do as we work out our own salvation that God has worked in us with fear and trembling. So the Christian life is also a life of 
dependence. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. If you're truly a Christian, you are dependent. God is working in you with his mighty energy. And through the means of grace, you can tap into his energy more and more. So don't neglect prayer. Don't neglect his work. Don't neglect meeting together. These are the means God has given. What mighty energy, what divine power is available for us. All we need, as Peter says, for life and godliness. We have the presence of the triune God himself with us. We can know something, as Paul put it to the Ephesians, of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe that is like that mighty power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We can know resurrection power. All excuses are removed. So what is the Christian life? It is a life of responsibility, lived in the fear of God, dependent on the mighty power of His grace. Is this your Christianity? It's not about merely outward rule-keeping. You can't come close to this in your own strength, what God requires. Nor is Christianity viewing God's grace cheaply, as some opponents that Paul mentions in this letter were doing. Their God was their belly, he said. It, it, it's, it's about working out your salvation. One or the other of these grievous errors means that you haven't got it and that you're more than likely not truly a Christian. We all slip up in our thinking, but if our if the tenor of our lives is either toward legalism, trying to earn God's favor by our own efforts and obedience, or, on the other hand, if it is license, simply thinking that you can live however you please, provided you're forgiven, then you don't really have biblical warrant for calling yourself a Christian. What do you do in that situation? Well, you need to go to Christ who came to the cross, who emptied himself there for us. You need to abandon self-help. You need to, if this is your tendency, stop trying to do verse 12 without verse 13. Or maybe you need to get a grip See that you cannot view salvation as a, as, as a pass to heaven, as some kind of insurance policy. Regardless of how you live, cast your hopes and yourself and your all on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. 
He brings the salvation His Father has planned for us, and He gives us the Holy Spirit. And because of these profound realities, you can understand what the Christian life is. A life of responsibility, lived in the fear of God, dependent on the mighty power of His grace. And you will be enabled to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do acknowledge that we feel so often that we are scarcely beginning in the Christian life. You have laid out for us a picture here of what, in essence, the Christian life is. Help us to reflect much on this verse, to see it as, on these verses, to see them as foundational, and to understand more and more their implications for our life together with one another, for our lives individually lived before you, at home, at work, in every sphere of our lives. And forgive us, Lord, for all our wrong thinking and all our self-effort that is not depending on you and all our laxity, all our blaming other things for those things which we ought to take responsibility for. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake and by your Spirit to grow in our likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ more and more. We ask this in His name. Amen. So let us sing a hymn which I'm sure is inspired by uh, this larger passage. Number, it's number 607 if you're at home or using a book, and it's May the Mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say.
Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.